1: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode in our special limited series of podcasts from the DSR Network. No issue is more important to the world than climate change. Starting November 30th, world leaders are gathering in Dubai for COP28, the most important international summit at which critical climate issues are discussed. This series of podcasts looks at the crucial issues to be discussed at COP28 from the perspective of leading experts from around the world. Each of the podcasts features elements from a series of five live expert roundtables we convened to explore the road to COP28 and beyond. Each of the roundtables are hosted by highly regarded leaders from the climate and international affairs communities. The discussions are presented as they happened, live and without editing. We were very fortunate to have, as the chairperson of our roundtable discussion this time around, David Sandelow, inaugural fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University and a former senior energy official in the Obama administration. This series of programs has been sponsored in part by a grant from the UAE Embassy in the United States. The UAE is the host nation for COP28. However, it should be noted for this, as for all DSR network podcasts, all content is completely editorially independent, and each of the independent chair people of the roundtables have been solely responsible for the direction and substantive focus of the discussions. Now, on to the discussion, the latest in our series, the Road to cop twenty eight. You hope you will join us each and every week from now through COP28 to hear more unique perspectives on this vital event and the issues to be discussed there, and in the weeks following COP28 to join us for our follow-up discussions.
2: We bring in uh, Patrick Chandler, who's Education Specialist for Climate Literacy Energy Awareness Network um, and other climate education projects at the Cooperative Institute for Environmental Sciences at the University of Colorado uh, at Boulder. Dr. Chandler, your thoughts?
3: It's uh, it's really an honor to be part of this group, and I'm grateful to be here to represent the education sector. Um, Speaking about who's at the table and how to move forward productively and quickly, I, I think one of the greatest failures in this space is one of the greatest opportunities because education is one of the greatest and most important accelerants to climate action. And it's been one of the most underfunded and underutilized tools in this space. I think that really when we're looking at how to move forward, it's an essential component to increase political and public will. In the next five to 10 years, I mean, government at all levels is going to be advancing policy and working towards different mechanisms to move this forward, but so much of that policy can flounder due to lack of public will and lack of political will as a cause of public will. I think that the strong public demand increases the likelihood that governments will prioritize climate action, and we need to increase the funding and scope of educational efforts to generate that political will that is needed to really move forward in this space. So as we're thinking of economics, as we're thinking of all these important mechanisms to move forward, I would really encourage you not to sideline education and to consider it as an essential part of moving forward in this space.
2: Uh, Thank you, Patrick Chandler, for uh, bringing that into the conversation. And um, let me turn to David Simpson. Um, David is um, environmental resource economist. He currently directs the Global Environmental Politics, International Development and International Economic Relations Program, um, in the School of International Service at American University. He's held a number of uh, distinguished positions, both in government and um, in academic settings. Uh, David, your thoughts? Uh,
0: thank you very much uh, for having me as well. It's really a great opportunity to, to hear, uh, hear from you all. And uh, as I say, uh, in passing, it's great to see Ian and Richard that uh, we both started at Resources for the Future in the mid-1990s. And from that perspective, it's really, it's going back to what you were saying to begin with, David, it's its terrifying the way the world has changed, I think, since since the mid-1990s, or maybe, maybe more accurately, I should say, I've certainly become aware of the ways in which the world is changing and in very, very frightening ways uh, since that time. Uh, I find myself sort of, as on so many things, firmly on both sides of the issue, that I agree that uh, we have not been doing what we need to do. I also agree that there has been tremendous progress in things like renewable technologies. Uh, My particular area of study has been uh, conservation, biodiversity, and forest-related climate uh, or carbon sequestration. I guess I'd say from that perspective, I think the biggest uh, concern I have at this point is we're at a point where we have to decide what to do. There is not an effective mechanism for encouraging conservation of forests and carbon sequestration from forests. Uh, I think the Beck's, uh proposals have been made are... are to some extent, falling by the wayside and we're unrealistic. And the question now is, what is going to be the status of biological approaches to carbon storage? And at this point, I think we have seen that there are a lot of institutional and informational challenges. And the potential is certainly there for for doing more storage and preservation. But at the same time, it's a still an open question, I think, as to whether the resources, the intellectual resources, the political resources should go into forest-based solutions or whether we should be concentrating more in other areas.
2: Uh, David Simpson, thank you. It's been an amazing discussion so far. Let me let me ask, looking back since the Paris Agreement, what do you think has been the biggest success um, and the biggest failure with respect to climate change. Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Uh, Richard Newell. um, Richard Newell, president and CEO of Resources for the Future. The floor is yours.
4: Yeah, I think one of the biggest successes since Paris has been an increased focus on net zero emissions uh, as the appropriate target where our focus of action should be. We've moved from uh, really, you know, 30 years where initial focus was around on uh, stabilizing concentrations of greenhouse gas emissions in the atmosphere. Uh, focus on temperature targets: 1.52 degrees. I think what has made things much more actionable is a focus on emissions and the target being net zero. Because to stabilize the climate, to stabilize the con- to stabilize countries, you need to move net zero, and that has been taken up also by the private sector. And it's a concept that can be operationalized in decision making at multiple levels globally, country level, company level, I think that's been very helpful to orient the conversation toward very concrete action. And then we've seen, uh, based on that, a lot of different actions by the United States, by the EU and their Fit for 55. Um, so there's been a lot of federal action and private sector action, I think, in response to that
2: shift in in, in concept. Uh, uh, thank you, Richard. Um, uh, uh, Ian Perry. Um,
5: yeah,
6: I don't think there's been one really big success, but really um, several steps in the right direction. Um, you know, we've, we've seen that um, countries representing about eighty percent of our global emissions have made uh, net zero pledges uh the mid-century now. Uh, since the original Paris Agreement, <coughs> we're seeing a number of countries scaling up their uh, sectoral targets for renewables, electric vehicles, and so on. <coughs> we've seen some countries aggressively cutting emissions in the EU, uh, Canada. We've seen policies, uh, momentum for carbon pricing, for example, that's now operating in nearly 50 countries, more schemes in the pipeline. And uh, as as we said, technologies have progressed. We've seen uh, rapid reductions in the costs of uh, solar wind uh, electric vehicles, for example. Um, I think the biggest failure, uh, in my view, is that we need to be honest that the Paris Agreement by itself, although it's achieved a lot, it will not by itself deliver the reductions in global emissions that we need by 2030. At the moment, we've pledged to reduce emissions 12%. We need to uh, double that for 2 degrees Celsius. We need to quadruple it for uh, for 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2030 and and i think um you know one of the um obstacles in the paris agreement is that it's just very difficult to negotiate greater mitigation ambition because there are just too many parties 165 plus the eu and when countries are acting unilaterally as they do under the paris agreement it's just very difficult for them to aggressively scale up policies due to concerns about um impacts on competitiveness and uncertainties about what other countries are are doing so i really think it's up to the um biggest emitters to lead and help us uh, solve this problem. It's China, the EU, India, the US alone is 60% of emissions. Uh, the G20 is at uh, 80% of emissions. So I think it's up to these large emitters to get together and agree on a concrete coordination mechanism to complement and reinforce the Paris Agreement, uh, which, which contains concrete measures which, if enacted, uh, would deliver
2: the reductions in the global emissions that we need. Um, let me bring in Subiniev Deputy Special Envoy for Climate for the U.S. government.
7: Well, thanks, David. Maybe three points. Um, I think on the positive side, and I'll talk about the Paris Agreement in particular, sort of the diplomatic side, I think the concepts from Paris have just spread all over the place. And that's one of the very positive contributions since 2015. Even though Paris doesn't use the expression net zero, because the the word net was Repulsive to some, and the word zero was repulsive to others, and it talks more about a balance between emissions and removals. But that's almost like net zero, so that concept is, I would say, was born in Paris. The whole concept of pursuing efforts to one point five, the idea of long term strategies, all of those things are now all over the place, uh, no matter where you turn. And you know, you've got universal participation. I think all of those things are uh, positives. On the negative side. I think you know some have talked about a. Of course, we all agree that there is a uh, ambition gap. We all agree that there is an implementation gap. Uh, we have identified a third thing called the practice gap, and what I mean by that is, given the nationally determined nature of um, of emissions commitments, which I think was an absolute precondition for getting agreement in Paris, and I wouldn't change it. But one of the uh, implications of that approach is not everybody puts their ambition into the form of an NDC. And you have um, some of the largest emitters in the world, and and the largest emitter in the world, actually, uh, very much under committing um, to the point where it's almost like a a lack of fairness, or it's it's, an inequity issue because everybody else is taking on a stretch target that they're accountable for under the transparency regime of the Paris Agreement where they have to report and be reviewed. And, you know, it'll be obvious to the whole world that they don't meet their target and they'll be yelled at and all of that. And if you vastly under commit, you sort of hold open the possibility of saying, you know, we're great because we over complied at the same time, you actually removed yourself uh, from the accountability mechanism of the agreement. I don't think there's a great way to fix it without going in a completely different direction, which I think would then, you know, completely disturb the, you know, equilibrium in a way. But the third point is just, um, you know, yes, we recognize the limits of Paris, and that's why Paris. You know, I've sort of written about the fact that the Paris Agreement can't do it alone, and you know nobody should put all their eggs in the in the basket of the paris agreement the targets are too ambitious i don't mean that they are too ambitious i mean they're too ambitious to put on the shoulders of a single uh, agreement and therefore many other things have to take place these side initiatives the montreal protocol took up hfcs i mentioned before that the imo and the icao have took up their sectors um it's it's expensive to address. The financial institutions need to get involved. They need to shift and align their, uh, the financial flows. And it's also a, a consensus process. So, you know, by definition, it's going to be kind of limited in what it can agree, you know, what you can get 200 countries to agree to who have very, very different interests. Thanks.
2: Uh, thank you, Sue Um Mandy Rombros. thoughts on this. Successes and failures since Paris.
5: Thanks. Thanks so much, David. And I think uh, Sue raised the first point around, I think the Paris Agreement itself was a success in that what it did was it demystified climate change for a lot of constituencies, I think. Whereas the Climate Change Negotiations COP was a very esoteric term for a very select few. It actually, uh, well, in my experience with the constituencies that we've been dealing with, Um, It became more of a a common thing to talk about climate change, which I think was great. The other thing the Paris Agreement did was, for the first time, mentioned just transition. And I think social impact issues from decarbonization, unintended consequences, is sorely lacking in in a lot of uh, rhetoric or a lot of narratives around climate change. And I think Paris Agreement has put it on the table. And finally, we're seeing some action around plans on that. Granted, they still need to be implemented, but we we are seeing that. I think for me, and and saying this as a former Article 6 negotiator, the biggest failure thus far has been the inability to operationalize the carbon market. Uh, we just talking about it too much. There's so much bureaucracy around it now. It actually saddens me. So I think that is a failure, and I would love to see us being able to do that going forward. Thanks.
2: Uh, Thanks, uh, Mandy Rambrose. Let me turn to David Simpson. Thoughts on successes and failures?
5: I'd say
0: success would be the continued penetration of renewables and biggest failure, I think, uh, taking off from from what Mandy just said, uh, inability to implement the markets and particularly with regard to the forest sector, uh, such transactions as have been proposed are often illusory and not, not very productive.
2: Uh, Thank you. We are really honored to have um, here with us Ambassador Lawrence Tubiana, um, an architect of the Paris Agreement, and uh, your thoughts on successes and failures uh, since Paris. I
8: I will not repeat the excellent things that have been done, um, climate being now all over many, many systems, many actors, many uh, net zero being a reference. All this is really very, very positive. Uh, I will add one thing we haven't mentioned, which is now you can have litigation from association or young people against companies or government because they don't fulfill the Paris Agreement commitment. So Paris is part of a legacy. The failure is that we still not want the battle of the development cannot go without climate action and that we can have development against climate policy. And that, I think, is still a big failure, uh, because that if we cannot overcome that, uh, I think we will have transactions, a transactional approach to that, where we should have necessarily a very cooperative one. Uh,
2: Professor Jody Freeman, Harvard law school.
9: I would rather frame things in terms of challenges than failures, but I'd like to spotlight um, something I think is missing, which is... A really a coherent articulation of how the oil and gas industry will transition. I think we've really failed to figure that out. There there is a, a problem with the short and the long term, and no one has filled in the medium term. In the short term, there's enormous pressure on the oil and gas industry to satisfy demand, which remains very high. And especially under dire circumstances, like the Ukraine war, they're being asked by governments to produce. And yet, they say, uh, we say that they're falling, and we rightly say they're falling very short of a long-term plan to transition to meet a Paris aligned net zero world. And this is incompatible and we don't know how to get, and neither do they from here to there. And I think we need to spend some time and they need to spend some time very interested to see what Sue and others say might happen in Dubai with national oil companies, there should be increased pressure on the national oil companies to do and say and make commitments because they produce the overwhelming majority of the world's oil. So, so far, the focus has been on the super majors who produce maybe, I think, 15% of the world's oil to make commitments, to articulate transition plans. But we are caught in a short, long-term bind, where and we do not have a pathway through it. The, the only other thing I want to identify as a, as a really important challenge is that this is now, it always was, but now even more so, an infrastructure challenge. When you turn to industrial policy and you say you're going to make billions and trillions of dollars of investments in new energy infrastructure to stand up a new hydrogen economy, to stand up CCS, to move to um, LNG to as a bridge fuel, if, if you're going to do all this solar and wind installations, battery manufacturing, what you have to do is develop policies that will ease that infrastructure implementation. At least in the United States, and I think in many parts of the world, we do not have that approach to permitting, approach to siting that is smooth, that it eases the transition, uh, and it's essential. Pipelines, wind turbines, CCS, it's all transmission planning, uh, site um, development, requiring permits. It's incredibly labor-intensive, time-consuming, and filled with delay and conflicting regulatory agencies across the globe. And this is an ongoing challenge if we're really going to make the transition that we all know is necessary. I'm worried about the scale of the infrastructure required, and I'm not blaming Paris for it. Paris made it clear that we need it, but I'm not sure we have a developed notion of how to do this.
2: Thank you, Jody Freeman. And thank you for bringing the oil and gas industry into this conversation. It's obviously going to be a central part of the dialogue uh, at at COP28. See if anyone has thoughts on that, um, as well as your points on infrastructure. Uh, Let me turn to Patrick Chandler.
3: Thanks, David. And I really appreciate everybody's comments here. Um, There are so many ways to think about and go about this. And I'm going to jump into the education sector for a minute, thinking of uh, Paris' uh, failures and successes. Um, In the United States education sector, whether you're talking formal education, informal or workforce development, there's been a lot of systematic transformations that have begun to have some significant investment. And the Inflation Reduction Act has really provided historic workforce development and training investments. Um, And we're starting to see several states start to teach climate change across all grades and subjects. And Paris Agreement really did a lot to catalyze that momentum. And get things rolling. But in terms of education and communication, and a lot of what I see uh in the messaging, we're still stuck in the deficit model. And there's a saying, the deficit model is dead, long live the deficit model. Because we keep running into this space where we believe that if we could only tell people, if we could only communicate the right things, then they would do the right things. But we're really missing this space of, of affective and cognitive connection. And In a space where climate change communication and, in large part, education is disconnected from the affective realm because we we leaned really heavily into the information-centric space. And when you just focus on the facts of climate change, whether you're focused on the impacts or solutions, you can really lose connections with the values, beliefs, and uh, feelings that have created many of the impacts of climate change and are desperately needed to enable the solutions. And I think in order to move forward, we need to reconnect climate science to, to culture through education and the arts and other tools and re engage the affective realm so that we have the potential in our messaging to move beyond causing immediate climate grief, apathy, and anger, and move into a space where there's more agency and potential for climate action. And education is such a key component to creating that political will um, that moves us forward into that action space.
2: Uh, well, uh, thank you, Patrick Chandler. And uh, I'll offer a couple of thoughts I, and, uh, on on failures and successes. And, and first let me note, I think most of the comments have been in um, the area of mitigation. Uh, not all of the comments, most of the comments in this dialogue have been on mitigation. And of course the global stock take is about finance and adaptation as well. Um, and in terms of failures, we've we've failed significantly, obviously, in in meeting the hundred billion dollar target that's been this, um, that's so central to um, the dialogue in the Paris agreement. But also, I think, in in mobilizing private capital in a way we need to do. Um, and then on the adaptation front, um, we are only beginning to invest in the way we need on climate adaptation. We know that we're going to be experiencing climate impacts. And and I think we're not yet as a world, my view, we're not yet as a world paying enough attention to the investments that will be needed in adaptation in the years ahead. Um, Two successes I would point to since Paris, I'm I'm not sure they're directly attributable to Paris agreement, but but two successes. One is um, uh, the incredible... Price drop in renewable energy, in particular in solar power, and it's just you know we we have a world now where um, solar power in particular is um, it, it's so cheap, and and once storage prices catch up with that, it's going you know it's going to be even more transformational for electric grids. But it's really a different world than it was um, you know, a decade ago with respect to the price of power. And then second is the focus on industrial emissions. And and I think that's really taken hold in the past five years, but we realize that as wonderful as it is that we we have these price drops in the power sector, that alone is not going to address the climate change issue. And among the sectors that require a lot of attention are iron and steel, chemical cement sectors, um, and and there's been increasing focus on that, which I think is extremely, extremely promising. Um uh, I see uh Subinias has her hand up Sue.
7: Thanks, David. Um, you raised finance, and I just want to make a couple points about that because we have talked mostly about mitigation. Yes, it's true that the developed countries did not meet the goal uh, of 100 billion dollars in 2020. I just like Jody doesn't like to use the word failure for for things. Uh, I think it's harsh to call that 85 billion dollars in 2020 a failure. As I pointed out, that would be a B plus uh, at least in the United States. Um, uh, the But the, the broader point that I wanted to make is like that's one aspect of the Paris outcome. Um, but another was the third long-term goal of the Paris Agreement, right? And people, I, I think of it as almost the forgotten long-term goal of the Paris Agreement. I mean, the first one is temperature goal, of course. The second one is about enhancing adaptation and resilience. And the third is not about transfers from these countries to those countries, but it's about aligning financial flows in the world at large with those other two goals, with you know uh, the temperature goal and resilience uh, slash adaptation. And that's an area where I don't think we've done um, very well since 2015. There's been quite a bit of resistance, and there continues to be resistance to even talking about that article. And it's one of the challenges we have um, in front of us with respect to this COP, where we're just, you know, even to get that uh, article number mentioned has become controversial for, uh, for whatever reason. And so uh, I do think you're not going to get uh, 1.5 degrees or in sufficient adaptation and resilience without aligning the trillions. You know, it's not about the billions. As important as the billions are, so I would just sort of put that on the table as uh, an important aspect
9: of the of re- the review this year.
2: Uh, thank you, Sue Uh Jody Freeman.
9: I said one more thing to add about what I'm worried about. I seem to be sitting here being worried, and, and one is that um, I think we're succeeding, relatively speaking, on policies focused on supply, increasing the supply of alternative energy, renewable energy in particular but also starting to spur hydrogen as an alternative, starting to spur other alternatives. But we're sorely lacking on policies to slow demand, and, and that is where carbon pricing is is so helpful. And so, you know, it, it, one way or another, we have got to start focusing on demand, which is politically extraordinarily difficult to do. Um, and And the politics of this worry me too, because I'm concerned that a smaller and smaller group of highly informed, highly motivated climate experts and policy wonks and, and um, analysts who are very focused on these issues know how to talk to each other and know how to persuade each other, but that we are not working as hard as we need to work on persuading people who are not yet persuaded. And we have huge divides across the world in ter- cultural divides, political divides that, that are really in need of attention and talking internally isn't going to be effective in persuading those who don't speak the language and aren't swayed by the same arguments. So, this attention to the way in which climate has become enmeshed in cultural politics, to me, that's a kind of failure, that's a loss, and we need to develop a strategy to solve it.
2: Uh, thank you, Jody Freeman. Um, Laurent, to be honest.
8: Um, I, I totally agree with Jody, where we are losing, at least for the moment. I hope it will be a low and we will regain more political space. That climate now is weaponized and uh, sort of presented as an identity issue, where of course it just doesn't make any sense, but it is working. It's not working only in the US. It's working in Germany. It's working in UK. It's working in France. And uh, that's why uh, what uh, the, the element of how you, you, the culture of people, the ownership of citizen, the understanding that even it cannot be only national interest. It has to be national interest plus cooperation. That's very sophisticated type of and understanding and mobilization that we have not delivered. So we have thought that the policies well done, well designed will solve that. It, it's not happening. And we are creating and seeing a backlash. Against these main policies again weaponized by certain political movement, so citizens should be a a central focus of our attention now again, it's not a quick win it's not a quick fix, but it is absolutely essential
2: let uh, thank you to, um let's turn to what needs to come next um and uh our, our time is running short so let let's imagine that uh, each of us is at the beginning of a meeting with the head of state and the head of state asks, you know, um, w- what needs to be done um, in the next five to 10 years? What's your priority in, in this area? And you, you know that you've only got 60 seconds, 120 seconds to answer that question um, before others need to talk. What, what, um, what's, the, what's your short answer to the question? What's the priority? What needs to be done to address climate change uh, in the years ahead?
5: Uh, Ian Perry. Um, Yeah, I think we need uh, to reinforce the Paris Agreement with an additional
6: international mechanism that directly addresses the uh, key impediments that are preventing a rapid scaling up of global mitigation ambition, namely that there's too many parties to the Paris Agreement for negotiation, and secondly, that's deterring uh, individual countries scaling up their policies, that is that they're acting unilaterally. So we proposed um, an an additional international uh, mechanism which would have two key elements. First of all is a focus on a small number of uh, large emitters to facilitate negotiation while still covering the bulk of emissions. And second is a focus on a minimum carbon price uh, that they should uh, implement to help because joint action to scale up carbon pricing would help address concerns about competitiveness and policy uncertainty. We'd need to address equity issues that could be done through differentiating pricing requirements according to development levels. It would need to be accompanied by assistance for low-income countries in this agreement. We'd need flexibility, allowing countries that can't do carbon pricing to achieve their uh, emissions reductions through uh, equivalent uh, instruments. But we estimate that if uh, high, middle and low-income countries were subject to carbon price flaws of 75 $50, $25 per tonne, Uh, in 2030, then this would be sufficient to align global emissions with staying below two degrees Celsius, even with just six participants in this agreement. Uh, As I said, China, India, the EU, the US, Canada, and and, uh, the, the UK. That's assuming all group of 20 countries meet their current mitigation pledges, and those that are in the agreement meet whichever is the more stringent of this pricing requirement and their emissions pledge. And I don't think this agreement is that um, unrealistic. I mean, for example, India, it's not in their interests to see global warming rising above two degrees Celsius. Um, Their concern is to get a robust source of uh, transparent finance. They could just say, well, we're willing to increase our coal tax to $25 per ton in exchange for whatever they think is reasonable
2: assistance, $70 billion a year. Well, thank you, Ian Perry, for putting that big idea on the table. Any other? Suggestions, thoughts about what's the priority for what comes next? Uh, Patrick Chandler.
3: I'm going to uh, keep chiming in with education, but I, I will say that climate change education is one of the greatest accelerants to climate action. And place-based climate education that spans discipline creates the agency and engagement needed to move climate action forward. We're talking about the challenges of identity. We're talking about the challenges of will to move forward and support for policies. Education is key to that, and um, it needs more support and funding moving forward. Thanks.
2: Uh, Thanks, Patrick. Uh, Laurence, to be honest.
8: Uh, I would be quite brutal. I would say calculate your cost. Calculate what the impact of climate change is costing your people, and then stop muddling through. Because uh, that that's enough, No, uh, just we can, we cannot, it's too long. So I, I would say a sort of very political message on my side, because they have the tools, they know the technology, not all of them. So the scenarios are, are clear. So just deliver. I don't know if the climate club can deliver, but I'm sure that if China, India, Europe, U.S. Like it was really honest about the cost of climate change for their own economy, uh, they would be a little bit more serious in my view.
2: Mm, Thank you. Very interesting. Uh, Laurence, Subinias.
7: Uh, Thanks, David. Yeah. So I think there's a common sort of conception, maybe misperception, that uh, all of these actions that people are talking about taking are all of the same urgency, but they aren't really. When we talk about phasing out, phasing down fossil fuels, that's a longer term issue. The thing that really needs to be done in the 2020s, what we've called the uh, the critical decade, the decisive decade, is to move on non CO2 gases and to move on stopping permitting of uh, coal, uh, any new you know coal power generation, and um, I think we need to make that distinction in the global stocktake or uh, or elsewhere because they're not all in the same time frame in terms of urgency. Thanks.
2: Uh, thank you, Sue Richard. Richard Newell. Yes, wanted to build on something that uh, Lawrence Tubiana
4: said, um, which is that we may need much greater recognition of the benefits of action and the economic cost of inaction. Uh, we've had a major effort at RFF <laughs> with partners to update estimates of what's called the social cost of greenhouse gases, um, which measures the economic damage associated with emitting CO2 and other greenhouse gases. This is damages of uh, things like, you know, to human health and agriculture and sea level rise. Um, that work was published last fall in the journal Nature, and it showed more than a threefold increase uh, in prior estimates from 50 about $50 per ton to $190 per ton. So now in a series of issue briefs, we'd applied that thinking to the global stock take uh, to estimate the economic benefits of increased mitigation efforts that achieve the Paris Agreement targets of well below 2 degrees or 1.5 degrees compared to the uncertain climate path that we're currently on. And what we find is actually staggering. Um, We find that taking actions to reduce expected warming to well below 2 degrees would generate total expected economic benefits of $467 trillion in present value. Um, If you add up the long-term benefits of near-term actions. Now that's a total over time, if you were to annualize that, put that in annual terms, that's equivalent to an annualized $5.2 trillion per year of benefits from holding temperature increases to well below two degrees. So those are big numbers, but I hope they help people understand why we need to be taking actions that are also measured in terms of hundreds of billions of dollars and trillions of dollars each year.
2: Thank you, Richard, and that aligns so so well with what Laurence was saying, and and, and provides the academic foundation, the, the analytic foundation for making the point about the cost uh, to leaders. So, thank you. That's absolutely key. Um, we are um, we're about out of time, and let me just uh, it, by closing question um, ask ask everyone here um, for any thoughts on an important fact that listeners. Um, may not know about climate change that that you think would be helpful. Something that's interesting and important in the climate change um, uh, uh, discussion um, that that isn't well enough known. And I'll start with one, um, which 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 is that thirty percent of global greenhouse gas emissions come from the food sector. Um, and I, I find in talking to climate change experts and and others that that fact is not widely known. When I first heard it, I was surprised by it, um, uh, but. Perhaps not surprising, since almost everybody on the planet eats almost every day. A lot of our infrastructure has to do with the food system, and I think thinking um, systematically about the food system can help us in the response to climate change. Um, I wonder whether anybody else has any any facts or concepts they'd like to put on the table there. Sue, any yes? Like your hand is
7: up. Uh, I wasn't actually (laughs) trying. That was a legacy. Uh, Oh, okay. I will say something about the global stock take. Um, and Laurence can correct me if I'm misremembering this. But as I remember it, um, there were some countries in, during the development of the Paris Agreement, even in the very final stages, that thought that the agreement should just end in 2030. You know, let's have one round of NDCs. And then we'll come back at the end <laughs> and see how we did and decide like what we should do next, if anything. And I think um, when there was an analysis, and it might have even been done by a, an NGO, I think it might have been the Climate Action Tracker, that looked at all of the NDCs or the preliminary NDCs that were on the table and said, these all add up to 2.7 degrees. I think that was the persuasive moment when it was not a sustainable position to say, hey, let's just stop in 2030 because the NDCs on the table, by definition, were not going to achieve the temperature goal that we had already pretty much agreed on. And I think that created the impetus to create a long-term agreement with these regular stock takes of how we were doing. So I think that's just one uh, bit of history that I seem to remember that might be of interest. Thanks.
2: That's indeed very interesting, very relevant for the global tactic discussion. Um, Laurence, any re- reflections on that?
8: Well, that's very true. That was a big battle. Some big countries did, did want the agreement to have a sunset close by 2030. And uh, Edolf, that created all the dynamic elements. So absolutely. And I remember exactly the moment and the night and the people. I, I The facts I would like to bring to your attention is we talk about, of course, a different level of emission and the inequality between between countries. But when you look at the internal uh, inequality element and the ca- carbon footprint of the 1% more wealthy, wealthier in the world, the comparison is stunning. Uh, um, a 1% more rich level in India has a more or less the same carbon footprint that the 1% richer in Europe. So there is an element of who are the ones who are really creating this enormous carbon footprint that's the concentration of wealth and i think this should be said now more and more more clearly
2: thank you thank you for that important point i'm going to turn to um to patrick david ian and then and then cl- just to close us out to turn to sue and Laurence for any any closing thoughts on on what we've been discussing um patrick chandler
3: uh, I think it's really exciting right now that there are multiple states that have mandated teaching climate across all disciplines and subjects, and I see that the United Nations is moving forward to include a broader understanding and view of climate through things like the Right Here, Right Now uh, Global Climate Summit focused on humans right, human rights. Uh, but in all these spaces, there's this great call for transdisciplinary work and interdisciplinary work, but it keeps ending up happening in parallel and not together. We keep looking at doing climate work in all these different subjects in all these different realms, but they're happening next to each other. And I think finding that space of true transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary collaboration is one of the most exciting spaces that's going to open up in the next few years
2: and that we can move forward with the next COP. Thanks, Patrick. David Simpson. Uh,
0: It's just an interesting fact that I'm often impressed by. Last time I checked, I believe, uh, uh, credit for a ton on the European trading scheme was going for about $90 U.S. The last Forest Trends Ecosystem Marketplace report indicated a, tr- a ton of forest carbon was selling for about $5 U.S. So I'm not sure which way to take that. That's either evidence that we are in a radically inefficient economic stance and or that um <laughs> maybe we're going to have to come up with arguments that go beyond the economics to
2: have effective action. Thanks, David. Uh, Ian Perry.
5: Um, Yeah, well, uh, I just wanted to focus on a novel, uh,
6: um, very promising policy instrument, actually. Um, I think we all appreciate that carbon pricing is the most uh, efficient instrument, um, but we know there are constraints on the acceptability of carbon pricing because it's, impacts on energy prices. So it does need to be complemented and reinforced by additional policy instruments at the sectoral level. Uh, and in this regard, I think um, the feedback policy is a very uh, promising uh, instrument. These, these instruments provide sliding scale of fees on products or activities with above average emissions intensity and a sliding scale of rebates for uh, products or activities with below average emissions intensity. So they can cost effectively promote all of the behavioural responses for reducing the emissions intensity of a particular sector. They can be designed to avoid a fiscal cost on the government, and they may have greater acceptability than carbon pricing because they don't impose a new tax burden on the average household or firm because they're not involving the pass-through of carbon tax revenue <clears throat> or permit rents into a energy prices. And we see this instrument integrated into our vehicle tax systems successfully in a number of countries, But exactly the same instrument could be applied to other sectors, whether it's power sector, industrial sector, agriculture, international aviation and maritime buildings. Um, And actually, for the forestry sector, it seems like the most natural instrument where we're trying to uh, penalize landowners who are reducing stored carbon over time and reward landowners who are increasing carbon storage over time.
2: Thank you, Ian. Um... Sue, any closing thoughts as we end this dialogue?
7: Uh, Thanks, David. Um, Well, I think we've we've used uh, this session to lay out a lot of the challenges. I think they are many. Um, The not just in terms of the real world and making progress on climate change, but in terms of the sort of the diplomatic process. We've got you know almost two hundred countries having to agree by consensus, meaning not a single one of them can object on not only the progress that we've made, but the gaps that exist and what should be done about them. That's a really tall order when you stack up mitigation, adaptation, finance. I mean, it's just kind of rife with uh, differences of, of view. So I hope you will wish us luck as we try to pull this whole thing together and come up with a global stock take decision that's kind of worthy of, of the moment. Thanks.
2: We do indeed wish you and, and everyone in, in uh, Dubai luck and, and Laurence to be honest. You have the last word.
7: I, th-
8: I think, you know, anyway, we don't know where we will be. And uh, my mantra is I'm not pessimistic or not optimistic. Uh, Anyways, that's a Pascal bet, as we say, the philosopher. Anyway, we don't have the choice. We have to continue. We have to be tenacious. We have to be ambitious. And, you know, we have no op- other option. There is not an opt out. So anyway, let's continue. I think there are innovative solutions. I, I totally uh, buy the IAN idea of fees and rebates. I think uh, it has to be even on global flows. We are ignoring them, which we, should, we should put them. So there is a lot of space of innovation, both in policy, on education, on mindset, on communication, on citizen involvement of lawyers. You know, you have not even president of the Supreme Court or constitutional courts that are really now uh, doing arbitration on climate. So I think the, the movement is there. We will fail or succeed. We can't do. But anyway, that's not the point. The point is just to continue.
2: Well, thank you. Uh, I must say I am struck by the breadth of this conversation and it reflects the breadth of the climate change issue. We've covered a remarkable number of topics um, in a short period of time. And that's because climate change is an issue that touches every aspect of, of human life. And And I think that uh, over the course of this dialogue, um, compelling cases have been made for for optimism and pessimism, for for successes and and, and challenges, um, uh, and much more. And and, and Laurence, your the comment you just made that we have no opt out uh, couldn't be more true. Um, so we need to keep marching forward in in this. And and let me just close by thinking all of our remarkable. Participants here. This has been a tremendous conversation. Huge thanks to the DSR Network for pulling this together. Uh, Many thanks to all.
1: This special Road to COP28 podcast was produced by the DSR Network, which is solely responsible for its content. Roundtable discussions were recorded live as they happened. The series was sponsored in part by a grant from the Embassy of the United Arab Emirates, hosts of the COP28 meetings to take place later this year. However, the content of this discussion, like all DSR Network productions, is entirely editorially independent, and the views presented were solely those of the participants. The executive producer of this podcast was Chris cotmore The producer of this podcast was
5: Riley Fessler. This has been a DSR Network production.